Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You are about to hear the recording of a live conversation. We hope you enjoy the show. Tashi Delay, and welcome to Tibet Talks. I'm Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet. Today, as we wrap up another year on this program, we are going to take a look at two sides of the Tibetan story. On the one side, there's the political fate of Tibet. Unfortunately, as of now, that fate has been decided not by the Tibetan people themselves, but by the leaders of the People's Republic of China. Over the span of millennia, Tibet had its own land, people, and history. Today, the Chinese Communist Party's rule in Tibet lacks a legitimate, historical, diplomatic, or popular basis. Chinese records from centuries ago referred to Tibet as a strong state that China had to deal with on an equal footing. The Tibetan people, meanwhile, developed their own culture, religion, language, and way of life. But so much of what made Tibet unique was shattered more than 70 years ago when the Chinese Communist Party invaded, forced the Dalai Lama into exile, and gradually seized control of Tibet, beginning an occupation so brutal that the watchdog group Freedom House now lists Tibet as the least free country on earth in a tie along in a tie with South Sudan and Syria. However, that tragic fate leads to the second part of today's story. During his long life in exile, His Holiness the Dalai Lama has worked courageously to resolve the issue of Tibet peacefully. He has put forward a middle way approach that would respect the genuine autonomy of the Tibetan people while recognizing the interests of the Chinese government. And his envoys have taken part in 10 rounds of dialogue with Chinese officials to try to bring the Chinese government's illegal occupation of Tibet to a peaceful end. That dialogue process has been stalled since 2010, but there's a new piece of legislation in the U.S. Congress called the Promoting a Resolution to the Tibet-China Conflict Act that will pressure the Chinese government to get back to the negotiating table. Throughout all of this time, His Holiness the Dalai Lama has been an inspiration, not just for Tibetans, but for the entire world, including for many Chinese people themselves. His compassionate leadership is a model for the 21st century, and his vision for the future is an endless source of inspiration that the Tibet-China conflict can be resolved peacefully. Today, we will dive into the leadership of the Dalai Lama from the vantage point of a new book called The Dalai Lama, Leadership and the Power of Compassion. We will speak to the author of that book in just a few minutes. But first, we're going to discuss another book. It's called Tibet's Fate, and it explores its title subject through the testimonies of Tibetans as well as the personal experiences of its author, Warren Smith. Warren is a researcher and writer who spent decades studying Tibet and served for nearly a quarter century as the only non-Tibetan member of Radio Free Asia's Tibetan branch. Recently, Mr. Smith spoke to ICT's Tencho Gyatso about his new book and his longtime connection to Tibet. Let's take a look at their conversation. 
Warren, thank you so much for joining our uh, Tibet Talks. Um, uh, first of all, congratulations. You have a new book uh, that's coming out uh, very soon. And uh, we're all excited uh, to see that. And we're really glad to have you here uh, for our Tibet Talks. Uh, we're all, we all know who you are. We're all familiar with you. But uh, not everybody who's listening to our Tibet Talks uh, they may have even seen your book, but maybe they don't know who the Warren Smith is. So could we start off maybe by you telling us a little bit about yourself, how you got started into this journey about learning Tibetan, about Tibetan history and being involved in Tibet in so many uh, years. So can you just tell us a little bit of your history, Warren? And right, thank you, Tenzala. Um... I lived in Nepal for 10 years in the 1970s, all of the 1970s. And I built houses for the national parks working with Sherpa carpenters. Also, most of my friends were Tibetans. So I became familiar with the Tibetan political issue. Mm -hmm. And in 1982, while I was on a trip to the United States selling Tibetan carpets, as most of us did in those days, I met someone who told me about a uh, language study program at the University of Inner Mongolia, mm -hmm. a Chinese language study program that was uh, $3,000 for including airfare for five months at, in uh, Haute, the capital of Inner Mongolia. Mm -hmm. So I signed up and went on this trip. It turned out there were 15 of us in the group. Twelve turned out to be undercover missionaries. The, and the four of us who were not, of course, we, we dubbed ourselves the Gang of Four. And, and we were pretty dissatisfied with how we had been tricked into being part of this group. But while, while I was there, I, mean, I wanted to go to China because, uh, or especially to Inner Mongolia, because it was an autonomous region. It was somewhat like Tibet. And China was opening up at the time. It was 1982. Um, and there were rumors that Tibet might open sometime soon, and I wanted to be there on the spot when it happened. It turned out in that very town, they chose Hugo Haute as one of four small towns in China to do an experiment on giving individual travel permits to Lhasa. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be there and heard about it. Mm -hmm. I got, I went down to the public security. I, I was on a group uh, tourist visa. I had to change that to a personal visa or an individual visa. I went there and I was told they'd given those visas to Lhasa for two weeks and now it was done. So I had to, I was very disappointed. I, I got I got a permit but to Urumqi and other places, but not to Lhasa. I went back to my uh, dorm room and uh, there was a, a, a lady or a girl actually there who was our housekeeper. And she looked at, she knew I wanted to go to Tibet. And she looked at my permit and she said, you know, I, I bet I could write in the, the word for Xijiang or uh, Tibet. And it would look just like what's written on here. And, and so we practiced or she practiced and then she wrote it. She wrote in Lhasa. So I had a phony permit to Tibet and I managed to get there. And this is the story of the chapter two in this current book, Tibet's Fate. I go through uh, my experience in Lhasa and in other parts of Tibet over five-month period in 1982, 
and also uh, meeting a Tibetan American woman named Dolma Timpa from Pennsylvania, who took me in hand and uh, told me that she would tell me everything that uh, all of her Tibetan friends were telling her if I would agree to write a book about Tibet. And so I agreed. And that's how I got started on uh, getting serious about the Tibetan political issue. Doma was from... Uh, uh, and how did you meet Doma? You met her first time in Lhasa? Or did you I know her, her before? I met her in front of the Jokong. She was there. She was dressed in traditional Tibetan chuba, but it was a, a chuba that was so clean and new that she stood out amongst all the Tibetans who were basically dressed in rags at that time. She stood out almost as much as I did as a six foot three foreigner. And, but she approached me. She asked me where I was from and I said, I'm from America. And she said, so am I. And mm -hmm. I w immediately went to her house uh, where her, her, her sister and brother-in-law were living. Her brother-in-law was a well-known Tonka painter named uh, Rinzin Pico. And they lived in the Opala mansion, just off of uh, the uh, eastern edge of the Barcourt. But people would come and visit Doma every day, tell her of their experiences uh, since the 1950s and 60s and 70s, and then she would tell me. And so I, mm -hmm. over five months, I got a, a, a lot of information about what had happened in Tibet. Were there any other, uh, were, there you, were there other tourists and visitors then in Lhasa or were there very, very, just a handful? And did you there meet There were very few. There were very few tourists at that time. They, they stuck us all in one guest house. At one time, there were 10 or 12, maybe 15 tourists. And they weren't really tourists mostly. They were mostly people who were English teachers in China because mm -hmm. only, only they became aware of these permits being given. I mean, all, all of my friends back in Kathmandu, where I'd lived for 10 years, mm -hmm. were just dying to get to Tibet. But this, yeah. this, and they imagined that someday that, the back door to Tibet would open through Nepal, but it didn't. It opened through China. Mm -hmm. And uh, none of them, nobody, basically nobody who knew anything about Tibet was there that summer. There were maybe 250, 300 people who made it to Lhasa that summer. But it was a wonderful experience because basically, Barely the, the, the rubble from the Cultural Revo Revolution had barely been cleared away at that time. There were destroyed monasteries. There, there was, uh, but people were feeling a taste of freedom. They were not afraid to speak out anymore. Like Dolma's relatives said that they just didn't care anymore. They had been persecuted enough. They were going to speak out. Sometimes uh, public security came to them and asked them about my presence there with Dolma. And they just, they, they, they told me, well, we're, we're going to continue doing this because we just don't care. Fortunately, they managed to get out and went to Dharamsala a couple of years later. But yeah, it was a wonderful experience and I learned so much. And it was, you got the feeling that the Chinese imagined they had changed their policy in 1979. So this was only three years later. They imagined now they could open Tibet to foreigners because their new correct policy, which would have replaced the old correct policy, would impress uh, an international audience. But what you saw when you got there was just destruction. There was so much destruction, even right in the middle of Lhasa. 
especially the Jide Monastery, which was a huge monastery that was just rubble now. And you could go there and just wander around and see all of the defaced murals and things like that. And also the, the Chinese, they always deceived themselves thinking that Tibetans were reconciled to Chinese rule, and they weren't. And Tibetans would tell you that. And that's, so that's what you, I, I managed to stay there five months longer than anybody else did that summer. And, that, and then I went uh, out through Nepal met Doma in Kathmandu, and then she took me to uh, Dharamsala and set me up in uh, Tibetan studies. And that's that's how I got started on this career. That was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. How long ago was that? 40 years ago? And then the promise to um, Doma to write a book uh, took shape, and uh, you went back to school also and uh, started writing on your first book. Can you tell us about your first book? Yes, I did. But um, first, let me, many years later, 20 or 30 years later, Dolma told me that he had actually been to Dharamsala before coming to Lhasa and meeting me mm -hmm. and had met His Holiness. And he had asked her find, to find some foreigner to write a book about Tibet. <laughs> <laughs> so, and Dolma found me and I was the perfect candidate, you know, because I was, I was a bit of an amateur scholar already, and I was a sucker for political causes. Mm -hmm. So she found the perfect person. But then, yes, I, I went back to school, to Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. I got a, a master's and PhD. And then my PhD dissertation was the book, basically. But I spent uh, 10 years writing that book. Mm -hmm. And it was published in 1996, I think. I'm very proud of that book. It's a resource book for many, many scholars starting on uh, learning about uh, Tibetan history. So, and tell us, uh, Warren, what is the difference between that book and the current book? Well, that, that book, yes, people call it a, a resource book, but that used to irritate me. I thought, well, no, you have to read it from beginning to end. Finally, I realized it's 700 pages. It's, it's very, it's very serious. You have to be really deeply involved in the Tibet issue to want to read it from from cover to cover. I have it. I have it dug out now, and I'm going to read it again because it's been a while since <laughs> I read it the first time. So I'm but, going to read it. Well, now I actually I tell people to start in the middle, you know, <laughs> so it makes it easy for them. The middle is the modern period from 1950. That book. Well, after I wrote that book, I came to Washington, D.C., and I got a job at Radio Free Asia. And that, that, that was really ideal for me because it enabled, enabled me to continue my uh, interest in Tibet. And also, I, I, was, I, was, I was very proud to be uh, thought capable of being an actual broadcaster rather than an administrator. I was a broadcaster just like the other Tibetans. And so I, I was always very proud of being the only uh, NG or non-Tibetan uh, in, in the Tibetan service of Radio Free Asia. While there, I wrote two more books. One was uh, called China's Tibet with a question mark. And it's about uh, basically political pilgrims, uh, socialists, journalists, and others who went to Tibet during the time when no one else could go there and wrote stories uh, claiming that everything was just fine and that uh, Tibetans were happy and dancing in the streets at their liberation by the Chinese, basically. Yeah. It's, it's based upon uh, 
a book by, by Paul Hollander named uh, Political Pilgrims, which was about uh, people who went to the Soviet Union in the 30s and, and had similar stories. And then I wrote another book called uh, Tibet's Last Stand, also with a question mark, about the, the uprising of 2008 and China's response to that, which I, I called it, uh, I was a little bit reluctant to call it Tibet's Last Stand. I didn't want to say that this, this would be Tibet's Last Stand. But if, I thought if the Chinese had to do, had anything to do with it, it would be. Because their, a part, the biggest part of the story was not only the uprising itself, but the Chinese response to it. They had absolutely no sympathy for, for Tibetans. And uh, there was a popular uh, reaction also. This was the time of the 2008 uh, Beijing Olympics and the international torch relays. And there were demonstrations against, Tibetan demonstrations against the torture relays in many countries. And there it was a popular Chinese reaction against Tibetans and their supporters for that. And this was the first time really that, always before you'd imagine that Chinese, popular Chinese, the people believed their government's propaganda about Tibet. But this was the first time when, when their popular opinion be, began driving uh, government policy. And it, it was just clear to me that you couldn't count on any sympathy from the Chinese government or the Chinese people for what Tibetan's aspirations, which they had so clearly expressed in the uprising in, in 2008. Which led you to um, Tibet's Feet, your latest book. Uh, this, this book is... It's a bit of a uh, combination of things. It, it's a bit unusual in the way it's written, but hopefully I think it hangs together and gives a picture of uh, not only uh, the uh, Tibet issue internally, but also the uh, Tibet as an international issue. And so I, I begin with uh, Tibetan testimonies, 12 of them, of uh, Tibetans who were had different experiences uh, it was mostly in the 50s and 60s, some in the 70s. And then I go through my own experiences of uh, having gone to Tibet in 82 and having become, having gone back to school and studied everything I could about the issue and then having worked at Radio Free Asia. And the last part of the book is a, a short essay on the, uh, the nature of the Tibetan political system. Thank you, Warren. To give the viewers a taste of your book, I wanted to ask if you could do a little reading, I particularly enjoyed reading um, about your experiences in Pasa and uh, your visiting the different areas um, resonated because you have the historical perspective and you kind of um, mix the tourists, but also um, detailed information of um, the places you were visiting. So I was wondering if you could just do a short reading. All right, this, this is about when I was uh, first got to Tibet, or was visiting Patala, which which I did uh, quite often because there was there were no tourists. There were quite few Tibetans actually, because the Tibetans were just starting to be allowed to Tibetans from Kamen Amdo, who who were still in their traditional dress and they 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 made such colorful scenes everywhere in Lhasa, but they were allowed to visit leave Patala. But there were no Chinese there and no foreigners as well. So I would just go there and spend hours every day. This is from one day I was there. Warren, this was 1982, yes? 1982. Patala was open a few days every week, 
I went at the first opportunity. You had to buy a ticket, but then you could explore all day long if you wished. You entered by ascending the long stairway that goes up first to the left and then to the right as one faces the Patala. The entrance continues of a long sloping corridor through the building on the right side and then turns left and emerges in the large courtyard in which the religious chomp dances used to be held. A group of Tibetan women there were tamping down the earth and surface of the courtyard and singing as they did so. From this courtyard, one enters the central part of the Patala via a series of stairways that lead to the top of the building. On the top floor of the Dalai Lama's empty quarters and the rooftop of where he used to observe his subjects through a telescope. On the western side of the rooftop, one can see the Chinese Stop Pagoda structures. From the roof, one winds down through different floors and innumerable shrine and relic rooms, always clockwise in a circumambulation fashion, until you reach the lowest levels of the Patala, dating from the Empire period of the 7th century. In the oldest cave-like chamber are statues of Saramsangapo, who unified Tibet, and his queens, Brikuti from Nepal and Wenchong from China. Brikuti is placed to the left of Saramsangapo, and Wenchong is to the left of Brikuti, one place removed, because Brikuti preceded her as queen. Despite the claim that Wenchong began the so-called inevitable unification of Tibet and China, the Chinese have not removed Brikuti or altered her place in this oldest shrine of the Patala. Also on the lowest levels are the large chortons of the previous Dalai Lamas, those of the Great Fifth and the Great Thirteenth Dalai Lamas, extending up many stories to the building, almost to the roof. Despite its massive size, Patala, like all Tibetan monasteries, is ingeniously built to allow light to reach the interior all the way down to the lower levels. The Patala is thus not a mass of dark chambers, as it might seem from its outside appearance, but a surprisingly light and livable space with interior illumination and delightful sun-filled atriums at the center of each main structure. Both the white and red palaces are rectangular structures of many stories, the lower levels being filled with massive assembly halls, of two interior stories each, into which light penetrates by means of skylights. Above the assembly halls of each palace are multi-storied atriums, built like small interior temples, each level diminishing in size like a pyramid. The upper level atriums do not reach the height of the surrounding walls, thus they are protected from the wind, but still receive plentiful sunlight. They are now glass, but originally must have been protected by wooden shutters. These central atriums are like sunrooms that were probably reserved for high lamas and the Dalai Lama himself. There is sufficient space around this central structure to allow light to reach into the interior of the building and at least partially illuminate shrines at all levels. Since there were no tourists in Lhasa, foreign or Chinese, the Patala was filled exclusively with Tibetan pilgrims. There were also none of the cameras and listening devices that the Chinese would later install. Each relic room had caretakers who were usually willing to let you sit with them in one of the windows to look out over Lhasa. I returned to the Patala many times and spent many hours with these caretakers, or just sitting on the roof near the pagodas and observing the city of Lhasa below. It was on my first visit, however, that the most memorable event occurred. 
I sat down with two Tibetans on the stairway entrance from the first courtyard. I attempted to ask a simple question in Tibetan about conditions in Lhasa. My question was innocuous, but the re reply was profound. Rongzin Mindu, said one of them, no freedom. Then they left, perhaps in fear of the possible consequences of what they had said. This was my introduction to the reality of life for Tibetans. Thank you, Warren. I believe uh, that's all we have uh, time for today. So I would um, like to recommend our viewers. Warren's book, um, Tibet's Fate, is available for pre-order on Amazon, and we hope we will to have uh, copies of it also on our ICT uh, store. So do please um, check out the book. And thank you again, Warren, so much for joining us today. Thank you, Warren. Thank you, Tenshala. Thank you, Tenshala, and thank you, Warren, for that rich discussion. It's now time to turn to the second part of today's discussion and our second book. As I mentioned earlier, it's called The Dalai Lama, Leadership and the Power of Compassion. The book includes a foreword from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and its author is a leadership coach and a Buddhist who found that integrating His Holiness's teachings into her leadership consulting resulted in more harmonious relationships in the workplace. The book paints an intricate tapestry of the Tibetan diaspora with 100 evocative and moving photographs taken by the author over a decade-long journey. The Dalai Lama, Leadership and the Power of Compassion combines the author's understanding of the emotional effects of migration, her skills as a photographer, her ability to listen deeply, and her study of Tibetan Buddhism. It is now my pleasure to introduce her to you. Please join me in welcoming the author of this book, Dr. Ginger Chi. Ginger, welcome to Tibet Talks. Ashwin, thank you for inviting me. We're so thrilled to have you here today, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Ginger, thank you again for being here. Uh, as you know, I've started reading your book. I'm about a third to halfway through right now, and it really has been just lovely to read, and it's, uh, it's told me a lot of touching stories that even I wasn't aware of yet, so I've really been enjoying it. Can you tell us what you hope to accomplish by writing this book? I absolutely had an incredible journey starting from 2009. I went to 24 of the settlements in India and Nepal and met the most wonderful people. As you mentioned, I'm a photographer. So what I wanted to do from this book was to share my experience through photography. And in 2018, I met His Holiness and he started telling me his story. So during COVID, I started writing and the two merged together into this book. And I really wanted people to be more aware of the Tibetan diaspora. I think everybody in the world knows His Holiness, but very few people really know the Tibetans or that they live in settlements in India and Nepal. And I'm hoping that it would open their mind, their hearts, and um, they do with it what they can. 
Absolutely. And that is a great point. And uh, I can tell you from my own personal experiences, when I've mentioned to people that I work for the International Campaign for Tibet, I'll say, oh, Dalai Lama, right? And I'll say, yeah, absolutely. And they say, so, uh, you know, does he still live in Tibet? And I'll say, no, not not for many years. So there is unfortunately, like you said, that lack of awareness about the greater Tibetan community. So we appreciate that you are trying to bring some more attention to them. So, uh, you know, as I just mentioned, most of our viewers will know that His Holiness was forced into exile over 60 years ago after the Communist Party of China seized control of Tibet. But one thing that I found that was really interesting in your book is that your own life story overlaps with His Holiness's life in many ways, including your own family having to flee China after the communists took power. Can you tell us a little bit about where you were born, what happened to you as a young child, and how ultimately your life journey led you to the Tibetan community and to His Holiness? My family escaped from China about eight years before His Holiness did. My mother just had uh, the, sec uh, the third child, my brother, was six months old. I was three. My sister was a year and a half. And my dad saw that little by little his friends were taken to jail, and it was a matter of time when um, he would also end up in jail. So he had left, and then my mother took three of us on a train going down to South China, from there to Macau and then to Hong Kong. From Hong Kong, we then went to Japan, where I grew up. My mother is half Japanese, and she spoke the language. My dad grew up a little bit in Japan, so they spoke the language. Now, Japan back then didn't really welcome so many refugees. And so the visa period was very, very short. So finally in the 70s, my parents got a refugee status to come to America. And my mother said she felt free for the first time in her life. And I heard the Tibetans saying the same thing, that they felt they were free for the first time in their life when they went, when they got to America. Now, many, many years later, I started to document um, all kinds of minorities in America. So this was in the 70s. I did that for 10 years, especially documenting Asian Americans, Hispanic Black Americans, because I wanted to raise awareness. Very difficult to make a living as a documentary photographer. And so I ended up going to business school and then getting my doctorate. And there I was, um, I met His Holiness actually in Zurich when he was teaching to, I think, 10,000 people. And he really spoke, I felt to me, and he was talking about the injustice in the world and that we all could do something to make a difference. So from that time on, I created a leadership program based on the Buddhist philosophy His Holiness's teaching. And it went really amazingly well because essentially I was bringing compassion and wisdom into the workforce. And then 2009, I had heard that the Tibet Fund was looking for a photographer to travel around to the settlements to document. And I volunteered. 
So my life completely changed 2009, traveling around the settlements, meeting the people. And they were just absolutely wonderful. I think later on you'll, you'll show some of the photographs. And then everywhere I went, they would say, because of the kindness of the Dalai Lama, we we're able to have cooperatives or we we're able to have schools. And, you know, they attributed so much to him. So I felt I needed to meet His Holiness to actually get the whole story. And I was very lucky. So 2018, I spent about five weeks, um, I'd say, hanging around him. He would invite me to all kinds of activities. And he was particularly busy because he was doing Losa. Thank, thank you for that. And, uh, you know, really thank you for... All of your efforts, you know, like you said, uh, to document the lives of uh, ethnic minority groups here in the United States, to bring compassion and wisdom into the workplace, and uh, also to, to work with the Tibet Fund. I think all of those are really uh, admirable endeavors. So, so thank you for all of that. Ginger, I have a note from your publisher, Interlink Publishing, and I know you're uh, very grateful to them for uh, working with you on this book. Uh, and the note says that in this book, the Dalai Lama emerges, uh, quote, emerges as an influential global voice and a potent example of what leadership informed by compassion and selflessness could become in the 21st century. So like you, like you mentioned, you had the opportunity to spend uh, a decent amount of time with His Holiness a few years ago. Can you tell us what, what is meant by that and what leadership lessons His Holiness has to offer? Well, he is absolutely an example of an amazing leader because of who he is. He's not into power. He's not into his ego, but he's extremely compassionate and extremely wise. And he's kind. So when he met me, he would actually explain that he had this experience. So, for example, he said... Um, he started traveling in the West and um, and then he'd say it was extremely, um, people were comfortable. But why are there so many homeless people or why are people looking so, so uh, lonely or depressed? And then he thought there was something in Tibetan culture that could benefit the world. And then he started thinking of himself as a global citizen. So he would explain the experience and then explain what he what he got out of it, and then what he did with it. So it's learning from others, investigating, going deep inside, and then action, but he's also extremely visionary. Now, when I notice what he does as a leader is, he develops it organically. So he has an experience, and then he's not proud or anything, so he wants to learn. He's constantly learning. And then from learning, observing, contemplating, and then he comes out with a vision. Now, when he has a vision, he doesn't tell people, you do this, you do this. He goes to the settlement and he said, you can do it. You know, I'm confident you can do it. You've gone through hardship before. And then he'd say, well, I know that if they succeed, they will build more confidence, Right. And so what I observe from the settlement is he's developed leadership. So if he constantly told them what to do, he would never have developed leaders. But it's 
absolutely organized so that you have different layers of leadership. Everybody has their responsibility. And you see that happening in America as well. And so he's created, it's not really, well, it's kind of like an organization hierarchy, but with him setting the strategy or the vision, and then people implementing it in the way that makes sense. And then the other thing he does, he's an extremely good listener. He's always listening with open eyes. So nobody's idea is bad. He's like, that is great. Yes, let's, you know, do something with it. So he's encouraging people. And so people feel confident that they could absolutely give something or do something that's extremely valuable because his holiness is smiling at you and saying, yes, yes, go and do it. And so he's he's building such confidence in his people. I've seen this in the, I've attended the 33rd Mind and Life Dialogue and the people would come and they would present and then they would always look at him and say, well, what do you think? <laughs> and then he'd laugh, you know, his lovely, boisterous laugh and say, you did this brilliant work and this is why it's brilliant. And, you know, congratulations. And so he, you know, he's attending for five days in the mornings and he's still listening and giving them feedback like this. And you see the people sitting a little bit taller, smiling, and you know they're going to do even more amazing things. So to me, that is just an incredible, incredible leader. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, all of us are really fortunate uh, who are living in this day and age that we do have access to this great spiritual leader from Tibet, whose predecessors never had an imprint really outside of Tibet in the wider world. So we are blessed to live in the era of the 14th Dalai Lama. Finally, I want to, we'll take a look at um, some of the really beautiful photos in your book in uh, just a minute here. But before we do that, I, I want to read a short excerpt from the introduction of your book. You write, although I was by no means a part of any of the Tibetan settlements, and you're talking here about your experiences uh, interacting with uh, Tibetans in, in India, I believe. And um, you write, although I was by no means a part of any of the Tibetan settlements, I also didn't feel I was a total stranger. Instead of hospitality, since I am part Chinese, they thanked me for doing this project, especially because I am part Chinese. I mentioned this to a Tibetan who said, it's because the Dalai Lama has been telling us not to hate the Chinese people. He has taught us to distinguish between the people and the government. And I was really touched uh, to read that. And I think it's a very powerful example of His Holiness's leadership in action and the results that that has already led to. One thing all of us at the International Campaign for Tibet and in our community of compassion, our members are focused on is promoting a resolution to the conflict between China and Tibet, including through a new piece of legislation that we are working on here in Washington, D.C., and it's called the Promoting a Resolution to the Tibet-China Conflict Act. It was uh, introduced in uh, Congress um, this past summer, and we're looking forward to it hopefully becoming law in the near future. So I wanted to ask you, you know, having written this book about the Dalai Lama and having spent time with him and gotten to know him a little bit, can you tell us how the leadership of the Dalai Lama can serve to bring the conflict between Tibet and China to a peaceful end? Well, 
I think his teaching of compassion has really transformed the Tibetan freedom movement from a more aggressive movement to a nonviolent one. I think the middle way approach, which is which was proposed by the Dalai Lama, is the strategy. And um, what he's done is he's essentially saying it's the government and their policy we don't like. It's not the people. We want to live coexistence. And he's a very pragmatic person. So he's saying the aim is to bring stability and coexistence between the Chinese and the Tibetan and not for freedom of government, but freedom of ability to live as Tibetans, practice the culture, practice the religion. So it's autonomy rather than independence, isn't it? You know, they're not insisting on political separation. They're kind of okay to be part of China, but they don't want the Chinese to be mining the fields or just, you know, hurting the environment and abusing the culture or essentially what Dalai Lama being somebody who believes in dialogue and peace. I think he wants to transform the whole area into sort of like a a zone of peace, nonviolent place, a a model place almost, like sort of like a Dharamsala, attracting, you know, international um, spiritual people, tourists. Um, It's it's just this, this sort of like a peaceful place where Tibetans could practice their culture and the world can come and participate in this culture. I think I think that is how he sees us. I also said that the Dalai Lama absolute is not about him. And I know the Chinese feel that when his holiness is gone, that whole Tibet issue would be gone. But his holiness had said this is not a Dalai Lama issue. This is much bigger than that. It's it's Tibet, but it's a global issue as well. Yeah, that's really lovely. And, uh, you know, His Holiness does offer the best hope uh, right now, not only for Tibetans, but also for China itself uh, to have peace in that area of the world. And it will benefit uh, the entire world, like you mentioned. One of the, the wonderful things about your book is that you do have so many incredible photos. I think there are a hundred uh, photos in here from that you you personally took, right? Yeah. So it's really, it's really wonderful. And it's a great in and of itself. I mean, that's a great reason to buy the book in addition to the incredible story that you share. So we have a few photos that you were kind enough to share with us. So let's go ahead and we'll kind of look through these one by one and talk about them. So let's go ahead and we'll share here the first photo. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Please go ahead and tell us about this. Well, what surprised me uh, when I started learning about the, the Tibetan diaspora is after His Holiness escaped and he found that 85,000 people followed him, he actually took care of the children. And this is 2000 and, between 2009 and 2018. Wherever I went, I would go to the Tibetan's children village or other schools. And by then, they already knew not to hate people like me. <laughs> And so when the teacher says, oh, she's from China, they break out singing Chinese songs. And then the teacher would say, and she lives in America. Then they sing it an American song. (laughs) (laughs) So 
His Holiness had always said to um, the future of Tibet depends on the children. And he wanted to make sure that they would be educated in all school subject matter, but also peace, uh, compassion, the awareness of their feelings. And I found out in the um, the Tibetan children's village, there's an area called the peace zone. So if the children start fighting, the teacher would send the kids there and then they needed to dialogue and um, <laughs> make peace among themselves. And once they did, then they can come back to the classroom. And so apparently the children don't go there anymore because they know how to talk. <laughs> so it's just a beautiful, very, very beautiful uh, garden. Um, but they're really lovely. And what I saw was that they take off their shoes uh, in the classroom. And then when they go out to play, um, they would help each other tie the shoelace. And so, you know, somebody who's capable might, you know, have to tie like five or six uh, uh, yeah. classmates before they go out. So it's yeah. very much um, encouraged to uh, help others before they themselves go out to play. And that's the model of the uh, TCV, others before self. So they absolutely live and breathe this amazing culture. I, I love that motto, others before self. I wish everybody would uh, take that up as their own personal motto. And I think we could all use a few more peace zones in our lives as well. So that would be good. Uh, can we take a look at the third photo, please? This was absolutely amazing. I think I'm up about maybe, oh, I don't know, 15,000 meters or 15,000 feet, it must be, up in Ladakh, where uh, there are nomads living year round. And they really don't have much, but it doesn't matter. Look, look at this. And I was very lucky. I stayed actually with the nomads, um, not in this tent, but at another tent. And they, they do everything they can cook. And it's really quite amazing. The younger children um, say that it's a very hard life and they probably don't want to grow up and become nomads. Um, I can see it's a hard life, but um, look how lovely they are. Yeah. There's just so much love and just connection. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, we have one more photo here. So let's please take a look at photo number four. This was really amazing. Um, I was invited to photograph all kinds of events, um, ordination, long life prayer. And one day, uh, His Holiness said, I'm inviting you to my house. You can photograph me while I'm meditating. And um, it was very dark room. It was early in the morning. And his attendant put a chair very far away. <laughs> All of a sudden he went, oh, first you come over here and we say good morning. And the mala bead that, he's, that you see on his lap, that's the mala bead he had with him when he escaped. So he told me that oh. story. And then he wow. said, I, I see you need light. So he flips on the light, and that's why you see that light from his head down. And then he said, <laughs> he said, um, you don't have to sit, you don't have to stand there. You can come as close as you want. I have a 
28 millimeters. So I'm practically right there on his face. And it's the photograph I got. Now, this room is his personal house. It's, it looks like a living room, but he mainly has this big yellow chair. Nothing says, I am the Dalai Lama. And I've oftentimes heard him say, I'm a simple monk. And it really looked like a place where a simple, simple monk really lives. And the whole time I was traveling there and, and meeting him, almost every day photographing this or that, um, he was always authentic. He was always himself, no matter how tired he was. You can see that he could hardly stand sometimes after greeting, I think one day, 400 people. But he was always kind. And, you know, it takes a lot of energy to, to listen to people. And then, you know, you pat them on the head or he'll smile or pat them on the shoulder. Um, he just knew what they needed for them to, to feel good. And it was, it was such an amazing experience. And as you said, we're very lucky to be alive in the, in the time His Holiness is, is alive. And I think what's amazing is he's taken something really, really awful and focused